Welcome, coaches, to another episode of Coach's Corner, PTR's podcast series. My name is Brian Parkinen, and I'll be your host for today's episode. We're thrilled to have you joining us. To our PTR members, a huge thank you for your continued support from all of us at headquarters. If you're not currently a PTR member, we'd love to have you join the PTR family. Jump on over to ptrtennis.org to learn more about membership opportunities. We are really looking forward to today's episode, coaches. Joining us today is Doug Cash. Doug is a certified USPTA professional, as well as being a PTR International Master Professional, whose successful teaching career led to his advancement in club management. Doug retired in May of 2005 after 32 years from Tennis Corporation of America, TCA, where he was their chief operating officer. Following his successful career at TCA, Doug started a tennis club consulting company called Cashflow Tennis with the goal to help clubs and professionals grow and run their businesses more successfully. Doug's expertise is on programming, compensation, tennis marketing, sales, developing managers, financial performance, human resource management, and the hiring and training of tennis professionals has helped numerous clubs across the country attain success. So let's dive into today's topic. All right, Doug, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on the show today. Uh, You've been doing so many great things, you know, helping coaches navigate through this challenging time. And we're just so fortunate to have you on the show and and taking time out of your schedule. I know you've got a, a, a lot going on right now. You're working with a lot of different entities right now helping to navigate through the COVID pandemic. So a big, big thank you for being on the show with us today. Well, Brian, thanks. I'd love to be here. Excellent. Well, we're going to dive right in here today, Doug. And, you know, two of the questions that I've been asking is uh, pretty normal, but it's interesting the responses that we're getting with them. So the first question is just this. Throughout this whole COVID pandemic, what's really been filling your time? Uh, how, where, where, is, where have you found uh, new hobbies, new passions, or has it really been 100% devoted to diving into helping clubs navigate through this? Well, two parts of that, the work part and the home part. Um, certainly the work part has changed. I did a lot of traveling to clubs throughout the, the month. And uh, as of March 15th, that's the last time I was at a club. And I've only left my house uh, twice since then. And I'm lucky to live on a cabin in the middle of nowhere. So I have lots of wood chopping and things like that to do. So I found plenty of things to do. But really what I've been doing with clubs is obviously a lot of phone work. And we've really gone through three different parts to it. Uh, Closing a club how to exist when you're closed, and then opening a club. And each of those has been a eye-opening experience because those are things I've never had to do before, so which actually makes it some sort of fun when you have to do things that you've never done before, but also scary at the same time. Yeah, it's, it's definitely you know, new challenges for sure that, that, that everyone is facing. And uh, it, it's just been really rewarding from a standpoint. And I don't know if that's the, the best way of anything being rewarding coming out of the pandemic, but just seeing everyone really coming together and the support that everyone has, has truly been showing each other, th- that's been the most unique aspect of this whole pandemic that 
that I've seen that, uh, you know, it, it, it's great for the sport and where we're going. How have you found yourself to be more or less active with projects during this? This is one where, you know, we're, we're all having a lot on our plate going into the pandemic, but it's interesting to hear everyone's response on what their project load has really taken the, sh the form or the shape in the pandemic. Well, I think you're right about the working together. If Democrats and Republicans can work together, the USDA, the USPTA, and the USDA probably can work together. And uh, so TennisUnited.com, uh, I've done a lot of podcasts for the USTA, USPTA, and obviously the PTR. And we're trying to get as much information out to people as humanly possible. And so that's been a project, just information flow. And it's all started with, you know, what does closing mean? Then how to get aid from the government. And we, I gave a podcast and webinar on what approach should be doing to get financial help during this COVID-19 time period. And then what can businesses do with the PPP loans and the EIDL loans, uh, how to get them. Uh, I was fortunate every one of the clubs I work with got a loan and hopefully it's forgivable. So that helped pay the pros and the rest of their staff for the period of time that, that they've been closed, which was the purpose of it. And obviously a lot of people have gone on unemployment, which for the first time in my, I've now been working, I looked at it this morning, 49 years. And this is the first time tennis has not provided income for me directly. And that's quite a statement, and I don't think I ever would have thought that was possible. So I even applied for unemployment, and we'll talk about that a little later on during the podcast. Yeah, definitely. And uh, lo looking forward to hearing a little bit about how you navigated through that. Uh, looking at this right now, Doug, what piece of advice have you really discovered that, that's really been driven from covid um, that every coach should hear. If, if, if we had the, every coach in the U.S. right now in front of us, a collective audience, what would be the one piece of advice that you would believe every one of those coaches should really hear and, and, and have value to? Well, I'm going to answer that by a phrase, you never know. And what I mean by that is you never know what's going to happen, and you have to be ready to be able to exist and achieve, even though you don't know what the future brings. And in this COVID-19, I think it's pointed out a couple of things that are very key. Number one, from a financial standpoint, everybody should be thinking about having an emergency fund. Uh, my definition of that is to have six months of monies in a liquid form that you can touch if you don't have a job. It's important for you, your family, keeping your assets alive. And if you don't have that and you don't have work, that became very apparent during this crisis. The second part of that is to make sure you have the best health insurance you can find. Because if anybody in your family, unfortunately, got COVID-19, you can see how important that is to have the best medical care you can get. My wife's an ER nurse and uh, every day she sees what's happening out there and it's not all pretty. Uh, the last part is, I said I talk about unemployment a little bit, the difference between being an employee and an independent contractor. 
as an independent contractor, you, there's a possibility to have your own business. You might even make a little bit more money, but there's a few things missing by being an independent contractor. The first is you're not eligible normally for unemployment compensation if you lose your job. Uh, the Congress passed the CARES Act, which in this particular case made you eligible for unemployment compensation. But the reality of that is I have not heard about one pro in the United States that's an independent contract that's got a nickel from the U.S. government for being unemployed. There's a subset to that. They say it's coming and it's going to be retroactive through middle of March or when you apply, but I still haven't seen that yet. The other part of that is there is uh, workman's comp. If you get hurt as an employee on the job, you're eligible for compensation from your employer. Uh, but if you're an independent contractor and you break your leg or twist your ankle and you can't teach, there's no compensation for that that has to be done by your, your employer because you don't have an employer, you're an independent contractor. So those three things have shot out of the cannon to, it, to me to really think about as you plan your career. Yeah, it's, it's definitely reshaping the industry coming out of this. And um, it, it's going to be interesting to see the, the long-term lasting impacts of how employment and, and, and really how coaches go about securing employment uh, post-COVID. You know, continuing with that and, and just building off that, Doug, you know, looking at a career post-COVID, what would be your non-negotiables for clubs, for coaches to, to really experience and sustain success? Well, the first thing is, I'm going to use a word, safety. And both the employees, the members, the potential members have to have a feel that what they're coming back to is safe. And it's their definition. And there are three groups in my opinion. Uh, and it's about a third, a third, a third of the population. The first third is gonna jump right back in. They're gonna go full bore right back in. They haven't been completely hurt by the financial downfall. Uh, they have not gotten COVID-19. Uh, they're antsy. They've been sitting in their houses for two and a half months and they're gonna get right back in. Uh, I have been involved in opening about seven clubs in the last week. And the statistics say that we're getting about 25 to 40% of the people back from that group that are jumping in and playing two or three times a week because they can't wait to get back. It's an interesting thing that they are also playing with their family more than anything or the people they were quarantined with because that's a pretty safe group because you've been with them. There's not much that can happen if it hasn't already happened. The next third is the cautious third. They're okay financially. Uh, they might got dinged a little bit. They didn't get the COVID-19, but they're still nervous and scared. I believe there will be some of that nervousness out there until there's a vaccine that can guarantee you can get better from it. And the last third is the vulnerable group, which I'm basically in, people over 65 or people who have a underlying health condition and are still told in the different phases 
that we open up with in phase one and phase two to still shelter in place. So that safety issue affects all of those people and plus our employees uh, because the employee, our pros have to feel safe going back to work and their families have to feel safe for them Otherwise, they're not going to come back. And I think we have to be patient and really work on their definition of safety, not the club's definition of safety. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, going back to, you know, before we even started the, 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 the podcast today, just safety is going to be something that is so paramount for everyone and, and how they perceive what safety is. And it's different for, for every individual, you know, along those lines then Doug and, and going into the, the next question that, that we have put together, you know, if I'm walking in, it's cash flow tennis facility and, and, and you're the owner, you're the operator. Uh, how would you approach bringing your club successfully back online, hiring staff back, uh, pr- approaching the opportunity to still create growth because uh, do believe that there is some, some, some great upside to people coming into the game throughout this COVID pan- pandemic on just experiencing tennis with their families. And, and how do you really leverage that or, or, or cultivate that into coming into your programs? Well, that's what we're doing right now. That is what is happening. And the plan is going to be different. Depends what phase of opening you're in in each state. Sometimes each local area has different rules and regs. So the first thing you have to do is follow them. And you have to feel that you're providing, no matter what you decide, that your members, as we talked about, and your team feel safe. And that may not be quite what is being done in your area. You have to do what provides that. So that's step one. So if they say you can play doubles, but you don't think you can yet, maybe you only play singles. You have to do what you have to do and what you feel is safe. The bringing the members back, bringing the team back, first of all, it's all about communication with them of what's going on to try to start that, create that safe space. The second part of it is when they get there, they have to feel that, but you have to tell them about it first. And, you know, bringing the staff back is, is not an easy thing. I don't believe we'll have quite the same revenues and programming when we come back because we're not got as many people there and therefore pros will be possibly less payment will go to them over the time because there's less people to teach or the program to and right now any pro that is on unemployment is making about i'm going to say a thousand dollars a week or doing very little and that will last till the end of july i think it's july 31st because the government has added $600 a week to your normal unemployment. And that goes away as of the 1st of October or 1st of, of August, excuse me. And so therefore, if you bring them back and they're going to make $200, that's not good for the pro. So you have to be careful how you bring them back so that both parties, it's a win-win rather than a win-lose because then you have an adversarial relationship with your employees if they make less money coming back. And you're absolutely right about the growth part. I think tennis and golf will have the best format and social distancing of any sports that people come, come back to. 
So I think we're going to get some new people in tennis. For instance, uh, one club opened in Kansas, and they got 16 new members in the first two days. Uh, that blew my mind, actually. These were people who said, we used to play tennis, and now we want to do it because we can't do anything else, and therefore I'm going to come in and join your club so I can do it. And that was a great thing. So that's a very promising thing for everybody to handle. Opened a club in Cincinnati, and they can't do any business, but, people, but members can play, which means they can't even sell a membership. They can't give a lesson. Okay? It's going to be difficult as owners and as the employees when you have all the new expenses of sterilization and cleaning versus less revenue than you had before, which doesn't make for a great bottom line. So bringing back everybody the first go round doesn't make sense unless you get the business for them. And those are gonna to be tough decisions. I've made this statement in the last month. It's gonna be much harder to be open than closed because now the decisions made. When do you bill your members their dues? What do you do with all the credits they have from the past? How many hours do you have for your pros? Who do you hire back? Who do you hire back first? None of that stuff is easy, but it has to be decided. And so communication with your team, communication with your members is key to all that. Involve them in your philosophy of what you're doing so they can understand it and understand their role in that. Uh, we have two areas that haven't been talked about much as we open up. One is pools. And a lot of tennis clubs have pools, and that's uh, there's been very little written about pools from any government agency, and the other is camps. This is summer camp season coming up. A lot of clubs, it's $250,000 for their summer camps. And we have to decide what to do with them, and we have to figure out how it has to change for the safety of the members and the team. So there's lots of decisions to be made, and open your club is a tough one to know when, what to do. Some people believe you can play doubles. Some people don't believe you can play doubles. I don't, I'm not smart enough to know the answers to all those, but you have to make some decisions. So it's going to be a interesting time as we open these clubs, exciting on one hand, because I think we're gonna get some new people in it, but scary on the other. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more with that. I, I think the, the best way of looking at this is it, it's going to really force the, the creativity and the, the innovation of the industry on within the club structure and the program structure of how to really uh, bring these clubs and these programs back online to, a, to, to create a thriving environment. But again, it's, it's maybe stepping outside of that comfort zone and, and really being innovative and progressive in, in thought and, and, and doing some different things that maybe we haven't done before as an organ or as a, as an industry. So yeah, I, I look at it as definitely challenges, but on the upside, there, there's going to be some great opportunities as long as we're looking to capitalize on those opportunities when they're there. I'm going to transition a little bit here, Doug, and I know the COVID pandemic has been the hot topic and, and there's been a lot of stuff put out there. So we definitely wanted to touch on, on some of the, 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 the key items with the COVID, but now I'd like to change gears a little bit and just talk tennis in general. Uh, and you know the the background between you and I. I've, I've I've had some some great history with you, and I've had the the distinct pleasure of working with you 
uh, both personally as well as professionally. And, and I've, I've had the opportunity to kind of stand back and watch you in action. And, you know, one of the things that really blows my mind every time I see you is just your depth of knowledge and how in tune to every different part of the industry you truly are. And it really leads us into this next question because you're so in tuned to the sport. You know, in general, what have been some of the pitfalls that you've recognized being made by coaches that have hindered their career growth opportunity? When somebody asks me that question, I go into a four-part career path summary. And there are certain things that are important, I believe, to every employer and every employee or independent contractor. And they're all important, so you have to do them all. So I'm going to start with the first one. There's some measurement of your job. It could be financial if you're running a department. It could be how many hours you teach if you're a teaching pro. How many kids in your programs if you are a high-performance coach. The list goes on and on and on. But there has to be a, a performance measure. And I'm going to say with all these things I'm going to talk about, there's one con constant theme, which is called constant improvement. Are they getting better? Whatever you're being measured on, is it getting better? If it is, you've either got a job for life, you've got promotions for life, or you can get a new, better job if that's your desire. So there's got to be a measurement of what you do. If you're doing it well and your measurement's going up, you're probably making more money too. So all that's good. The second is you have personal standards and club standards. Some are the same, some are different, but you have to live up to them. I've always made a statement that it's very hard to put somebody in management when they can't manage themselves. And so if you want to progress, you've got to make sure whatever the standards are that you've signed up for, that you follow and that you make others follow them also. Because if they don't, then again, what kind of leader are you or would you be? So standards are very important. And obviously as an employer, I want everybody to live up the standards because that's what makes our business great. Third is a word called business trust, that your employer has to trust you to do what you're supposed to do when you're supposed to do it. And that's a big, big factor. Can you trust a person to do what they should be doing when you're not looking? If you believe that, and you could make that statement for every single person that works for you. Either you believe it or you don't. There's no, there's no maybe in that statement. It's either it is or it isn't. And once you get on the downside of that trust, it's hard to keep your job at some point. It's hard to get promoted, but that is an important thing. And a lot of coaches have that. Well, I didn't call that person back. Well, I was late. Do I trust you to be on time for every lesson? Do I trust you to call your people who are gone when they're not coming to a lesson? Whatever, whatever they are, you have to trust. And the last part of that is everybody should have a mentor. A person that you have to help you get your constant improvement as a person. Probably one of the um, answers to the, actually the next question is, one of the most important parts of my career was to have a mentor. And um, I had the privilege of having Alan Schwartz as my mentor. 
And I actually just wrote a letter of recommendation for him to be inducted in the Midwest USPTA Hall of Fame. I found it pretty ironic that I was writing a letter for him rather than he was writing a letter for me. And certainly he deserved it. And um, uh, so a mentor is very important for your career. And I think that one of the things I did halfway decent in my career was to mentor many, many people. And my whole goal was to make them successful. And when you, I had many people that worked for me 15 to 30 years, and you have to have a career path and you have to have someone who cares about you and your well-being, and that's an important part. So there's a financial part or measurement part, the standards, trust, business trust, have a mentor. And there's one more theory here. It's called an abundance of exchange. And what that means is in all these situations, if you give people, whether it's your students, your boss, your owner, more than they expect, you will progress nicely. That's why I call it, they get more than they expect. It's an abundance of exchange because everybody has an exchange with their boss and part of that is pay. And so therefore, I want to give him more than anybody else does for that pay so he'll think it's very worthwhile and want to give me more. So those are the four different topics I have when you talk about what coaches should be doing for career growth. Yeah, and you know, it's, it's interesting listening to, to you really talk through those, Doug, because it's actually bringing those to life. And uh, it's an experience that, that I had actually w with you. And you may not even remember this, but it really brings to life that whole idea of personal growth combined with, with, with mentoring. And, you know, at the time, uh, I, I was a director of a facility and, and, and Doug, you were at that facility. And uh, I had just wrapped up running a cardio tennis clinic. And, uh, you know, at that point in my career, I, I had ran, you know, so many cardio tennis uh, uh, clinics and felt really, really comfortable with it. And, uh, walked off the court, you know, kind of with my chest popped out, feeling really, really good about what just happened and felt I had, you know, your, your classic dazzling pro personality. Um, but one of the things that you did really, really struck me is you just pulled me off to the side and, and you watched just for a little bit, but it made a big impact to me was you pulled me off to the side and you said, you know, that, that, that was pretty good. But did you, did you look at how you had that second rotation in that drill? If you would have adjusted it slightly, you could have had them uh, experience more times, more touches throughout the course of that. And it was a simple, simple statement, but it just brings to life this whole idea on, you know, striving for personal growth and always improving. But also, I would have never have seen that had, a, had you not have been there and, and had that outside perspective and taken the time to really give that feedback. And, and so those two points are, you know, so important. I think that's just an experience that I had that really brings to life those, those two aspects. Um, well, I, I agree. And one of my personal philosophies was all of my people who work for me or I associate with are my students and I must coach them. And so you have to work on a relationship with people that they want to be coached and they understand it. And I can tell you that um, most people avoid coaching in the employment world where they believe in the teaching world. When you have a student, you coach them. You tell them what they're doing right. You tell them what they're doing wrong. Try to help them correct it, so forth and so on. Well, the same thing has to happen 
with all your employees that work for you or you're mentoring, you must give them feedback, positive and negative. There's, you know, one of the things, and I'll go into the story with my mentor, Alan, back in the 80s when we used to travel a lot to clubs and working for TCA, at night we'd stay in the same room because back then you did those things. And the conversation was the same just before I went to sleep every night. Alan, what did I do well today? And Alan, what could I have done better today? I asked that question every single night because I wanted to hear the answer. And so if you're an employer and you respect your boss, how many times you go up to him and say, Brian, what could I have done better today? Or how can I help you? Um, that doesn't happen very often. And most employers are taken back when they're asked, what can I do better? Most of the time, they're afraid to even tell them what they're doing wrong. So it's an important part of mentoring is that communication and coaching. So I just took, you know, I coached kids and adults for a long time on the court. I actually did it in basketball too. And I just applied that to all the employees because they need to be coached too. So that was the relationship I wanted to be their coach. And I had to make sure, you know, here's a question, Brian, how do you like to be coached? And then shut up and let them tell you. And then do it. And because everybody's a little different. And also, there's another, when they do something that you don't like, and you can ask them what they would do with themselves if they were me. Interesting answers sometimes, usually a lot worse than what I would do with them. But so those are certain things in the mentorship world and coaching that I think are important. One, well, a big piece of that too is, you know, and talking, you know, tennis in general, but going back to this whole COVID, that whole idea of, of having that mentor, having that leadership or coaching coming out of this is going to be so important for everyone's personal growth and just working together as a team uh, couldn't be any more important than what it's going to be coming out of this. So it's yeah, really really appreciate that answer. And, uh, you know, I, I want to keep going and, and, and you, you've, you've kind of alluded to the, the, the next question a, a little bit with the mentoring and Alan, but the, the next piece is just, it's a two-part question. And going back to February, uh, you received the PTR's International Master Professional Distinction, which is, you know, for PTR, that's the pinnacle of, of the coaching career and really recognizes that the impact that you've made personally to the sport itself. Looking back at your career, what would you say are some of the best decisions you made to progress your career to, to gain success? And what would you view as maybe some of the, if you had to do it again, the mistakes that you, you had made that maybe hindered your growth? And the second part of that question is, knowing those two, if you had to write a letter to your 20-year-old self, what would that letter say? I'd probably not, I'd probably type the letter on a typewriter if I had to do it for my 20 year old self. They didn't have computers back then. Um, so, you know, my career was a, a tad different. Um, I worked with the same company for over 30 years and that's a little unusual to start with in our business. And, you know, I had to make lots of decisions along the way of where I wanted my career to go. So I tried stuff. Uh, I certainly was a staff pro a director of tennis and head pro, a, a regional person over multiple of clubs. Uh, I was a general manager. I coached college tennis. 
Um, and so I had to find, I, plus I coached high performance for probably the first part of my career. So I had to make decisions on what I was really going to do. And so I tried a lot of things to find out. So that was one of my decisions because, you know, I, I have a theory financially, the more money you touch, the more money you make. And so therefore as a staff pro, yeah, can you touch $125,000 of revenue from the people you teach? Sure. So you can only make, you can't make over 125,000 probably because that's all you touch period. Nobody's going to give you hundred percent of it in general. And so, uh, you know, I ended up, you know, running a company, I had 2,700 employees and I did about $150 million of revenue. And that excited me to develop all those people. So the decision I had to make was what does it take to do that? So when I had 250 salespeople, I didn't know squat about sales. So I have a philosophy that you should spend 2% of whatever you make every year on education. And you should get the education that helps your career. So what I did with that 2%, I went back to school to learn things I didn't know. Um, and so, for instance, I took every sales course I could take, every marketing course I could take. And this was after I was sort of out of my tennis world because I did all every convention I ever went to in my life. I thought that was a good thing just to learn. Uh, I'll tell you a quick story of how I learned before <laughs> before USPTR and USPTA existed. Okay, that goes way back. So in the early 70s, I decided there were three different people in the country that I wanted to learn from, plus a few individuals, and I'll, I'll make that distinction, because you had Vic Braden, you had Dennis Vandermeer, and you had Nick Balateri, all. So I took a week and went and visited all of them different times. So I spent a week with each of them. And this is before there was, you know, TCA University or PTRT or Vandermeer University. And there was no real PTR yet, wasn't even existed. And because it was the early 70s. And so I wanted to learn from them. So actually, I can tell you, I have a degree from the USTA. And the USTA is the United States Tennis Academy, which most people have never heard of. And the reason they've never heard of it, it was Vic Braden's course I took in 1973 and that's when the USTA was the USLTA so he could use the USTA's uh, initials because that wasn't what the USLTA was and then the other thing I did is I would call a coach like John Cook who some people will know from the Midwest and call and say John can I come in on a Saturday and watch you teach all day and buy you dinner and invariably they'd say yes so two or three times a year, I would go visit the best coach that I knew in some state and watch him coach all day, listen to him, and then buy him dinner and pick his brain. Those are my conferences and how I did it prior to when there were conferences. And there was no videos, there was no, uh, you know, there were all very few books, you know? Chet Murphy was a name somebody will remember I'm talking about, but that was the first book I ever read in tennis in about 1966. And so, you know, you didn't have the ways to learn you have today. So those are decisions I had to make. And the whole thing about developing people, I, I came to a conclusion and a decision that if I had better people working for me than myself, we would expand and be easy. So how do you develop people 
to be that good and help you run the company. And there's lots of different management philosophies to get that to happen. And that's a whole nother talk. You know, probably the biggest mistake I'm making is a little personal is I allowed my career to handle my first divorce. And was it, well, my only divorce, I hope it's not a second one, but I was on the road so much with kids. I missed Christmas once with at the Easter Bowl. And I had kids that did much better in the Easter Bowl, or excuse me, the Orange Bowl, than I thought they were going to do, and we missed Christmas. That was a tough thing. So I would have made some different decisions, and really what I'm going to say is you have to live up to your agreements. And the one person I didn't always live up to my agreement was my first wife. Now, I'll be home by 8 o'clock. Well, it's now 11 o'clock. I'm not home yet because I'm still working. And I didn't do a very good job of that. So I would go back and try to manage that. Uh, it turned out very well at this point in my life, but still it was probably the biggest mistake I ever made was that, you know, I had four kids and didn't want to really get a divorce. So, so that's that part. And so if I was a 20 year old entering the business today for myself, I'd say, you know, everything I did, I hope I should have done a little sooner, but that's the way, you know, time goes. Uh, I think that uh, I came from a tennis family uh, my dad and mom, my mom was the 1600 tennis champion of Rochester, New York. Very few people know that. Uh, my father uh, was a very good athlete. He was, got to the final cut of the Olympics in skating, figure skating, in the dance category. Uh, he just missed it. He was the last cut. And uh, he was a pretty decent tennis player as he, he played tennis every day for about 40 years. And uh, so uh, that was in my blood, even though basketball was really in my blood before tennis. But so uh, I think that all led to where I was going. My father was a very detail-oriented guy. After he passed away, I found some of his files, and he had every nickel he ever spent on every house he ever did. And this is long before computers. And what he bought every house was, I mean, it was really interesting to read all the stuff he had. And uh, so you, you learn a whole lot by osmosis from your parents. And I would probably listen to them more than I should because most 20 year olds think they own the world. And um, so that's a little bit about the mistakes I've made and the decisions I've made and what I'd say to myself when I was 20. It's just great, 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 great feedback. And it's, uh, uh, it's, it's this has just been, been awesome, Doug. I mean, just getting, you know, uh, kind of peeling back the curtains and, and, and hearing different things that probably a, a lot of people, most people, don't know about you and that, that's just so insightful and, and really appreciate that you know it, it brings us Doug to our our last question today and and this is one that's just you know it, it's always uh, when I look at you as, as and everything that you're doing it you're, you've had so many positive experiences you, you you've, you've been really involved in every area of, of, of the sport uh, it'd be really easy for you to say okay I, I've, I've made a positive impact in the sport you know, I've done my part, you know, kind of, I, I'm going to, I'm going to take it easy now, but you do the complete opposite. You're one of the most driven and passionate individuals still today, as, as, as it sounds from when you, you first started into the industry, what continues to excite and drive you every day that we're, that passion still burns so strong for the sport? Actually, that's a fairly easy question. Um, I got to have fun and fun for me is helping people. Um, I think developing people to do better um, 
Let me give you a few examples. Uh, obviously, I haven't worked for TCA in about 17 years now. And all the people that were on my management teams, I still have, I believe, a pretty decent relationship with them. Um, I still call them on their birthdays. We, we talked, we always talk a lot. These are important people to me. So I enjoy that camaraderie with those people because they, they were part of my work family and that was an important part of my life. Um, a couple things that Alan actually told me or taught me is um, on the first day of the year, uh, I used to call every person who was in the management at our company and I'd ask for their spouse. I wouldn't talk to them. And I'd call the spouse and thank them for putting up for what they had to do. And every time a new baby was born, we sent them something from corporate office. I can go on and on with the different things to develop the relationships with people. Um, and again, to this day, I call everybody on their birthday. I made my phone calls this morning because there was a couple of birthdays this morning. Yesterday was Michael Mahoney's and uh, Sue Morris, who uh, you certainly know Michael. Maybe not Sue, she was director of HR basically for us. And um, so, you know, those are things that drive me uh, is the friendships, the relationships. I got to have fun doing it. And that constant improvement still drives me. You know, I want things to be better today than they were yesterday every single day. And if that happens, I'm happy. If it doesn't, I'm going to figure out how to make it so it does. So that's. Uh, a perfect answer right there, Doug, just to, to kind of wrap us up on this episode. I mean, that, that was uh, the, the, the more that we can get the mindset of coaches to, to, to kind of gravitate that way. And, and really the environment that we have, it's the, it's the best office in the world. I always say that, it, you know, our, our, the court is, there's no better office than the court. And uh, it, it's such an exciting place to be. So I just want to thank you, Doug, for, for, for taking the time with us today. This was Absolutely an incredible uh, podcast today. You know, I, I know that the, the listeners are really going to get a lot of value out of this and, and we just appreciate you taking the time and appreciate everything that you're doing and will continue to do to, to grow this great sport. Well, Brian, thanks. I enjoyed it. Um, I'm always trying to help people and help our clubs and help tennis grow. And that's, that's the game right now. What a pleasure it was spending some time with Doug putting together this episode. We hope all of you enjoyed today's episode, and we look forward to seeing many of you on the next episode of PTR's Coach's Corner.